to episode two of Cripping Ulysses, a podcast that explores the friction between how we see ourselves and how the world sees us. But what does that mean? Specifically, through three conversations, we explore the notion of disability consciousness, which Joyce was supposed to have. Within three conversations across geographic boundaries, and identities, we look through the lenses of physical disabilities, neurodivergence, chronic pain, to learn a little bit more about who people are, how they navigate the world, and how they're observed. Today's conversation is with somebody who is incredibly special to me and has had an enormous impact on my life and how I think about myself and the world. Alok V. Menon is a poet, a writer, an activist, a thought leader, and a stand-up comedian. Over the past 12 months, I've seen them perform twice in person, here in Dublin at Home in Ireland, and at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And while both performances had a similar script, what I took from each of them was extraordinarily different. I've been fortunate to get to know Alok, across coffee tables, at parties, in intimate conversations. And I am always so moved by, firstly, their command of language and their use of it. And secondly, just their insightfulness in how they push us all to think beyond. Going into this conversation, I felt like I had a great understanding of what the output would be. There are moments when you can probably sense that the cogs are turning live, at least for me. This conversation ends on some amazing moments where it's not just thinking about the practices that we all know about to create change, but actually what role does love play in a disability consciousness? both in terms of how we love ourselves and how we love each other. It's a theory of change that I haven't given much time to. But I'm going to do it after this episode. This is episode two of Cripping Ulysses. I am so pleased and feel very grateful to be joined in conversation today by Alok V. Menon. Alok is a writer, a thought leader, and somebody who has genuinely shaped how I think about myself and also has given me tools to see the world from a different perspective. But I'm conscious that they're on the end of the line. And me waxing lyrical about how I see them is probably not the greatest start to a podcast whose whole purpose is about how they see themselves. I guess to start, for accessibility reasons, I'm going to give a brief visual description of myself. And then I'm going to throw to Alok to do the same. So, hi. My name is Sinead, and I have been your host for these three episodes. I'm a white cisgendered woman who uses the pronouns she and her. I identify as queer and physically disabled. I have brown shoulder length hair and today I am wearing a burnt orange pangaya jumper in the hope that it feels warmer than it is in Ireland currently and I'm wearing just comfortable leisurely trousers because it has been a long week of working from home. But a look, I'll pass to you. How do you describe yourself visually today? Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Alok, yes, and tell me a joke, Alok. I use they, them pronouns. And it's fashion week, which means in protest, I'm wearing a t-shirt and a pair of gym shorts and utterly unfashionable and glamorous in it. I've got multicolored green hair. I'm being interrupted by a siren, so you know that I'm truly in New York City. And I... um I'm Indian and gender non-conforming and live with chronic pain. This 
this podcast was born out of a piece of academic research which talked about James Joyce having a disability consciousness, both because he himself had low vision, though he never in his own descriptions described himself as having a disability or being disabled. But in Ulysses, there are many characters who have disabilities, and across Joyce's work, disability exists, though disability is often used as a metaphor to talk to political paralysis. So unintentionally describing the ableism that exists within society. And that notion of disability conscious has really rooted in these three conversations. I guess I'd love to ask, have you ever thought of yourself as having a disability consciousness based on how you've just described yourself there? Or do you think it's something that is a continuous work in progress for us all? I tend to believe that everything is a work in progress, that nothing is absolute. Everything is always becoming. And I think so often there's an emphasis with modernity, big word, that things um, are real and permanent. But my view of history, of time, is that everything is energy and circulation. And that's why I have a very ambivalent relationship with definitions, categories, and identities. Because I think we keep on trying to believe that there's one standard way to be. To be man, to be woman, to be disabled, to be anything. And I don't know if that's really the goal. Um, I think what's more interesting to me about identities is how we all deploy them differently. And so in my life, this framework of invisible disability has always been a real provocation for me because I think that we don't question that realm of visibility enough. Is it that these things are invisible or is it that they've become invisibilized? Is it that the only framework that we have to observe each other is one in which foregrounds a particular form of vision, precluding the possibility of other ways of witnessing each other? And that's why I was excited to have that conversation with you. I often wonder if that categorization of visible and invisible disability creates a hierarchy, both of needs and of who qualifies most to be disabled. And how is that often articulated through a non-disabled lens, whether that's based on access to services, whether that's based on representation, and really further marginalizes people in a way in which identity is potentially supposed to create a sense of community and pride. Yeah, I, I feel like it's it's not organic, it's superimposed. And I think that this is the difficulty in so many of the worlds that I orbit, which is that the language and the frameworks that we've inherited don't come from us. They come from the language of biomedicine. And biomedicine's approach to queer people, to trans people, and to people with disabilities has always been one of elimination and has always been one of pathologization, trying to say there's one standard body, this is what a healthy body is, and anyone who, I don't even want to use the word deviates because that's loaded, anyone who flirts with, anyone who transcends, expands out of this framework is suspect and criminal. And so what happens often is that the only vocabularies that we have to narrate ourselves are so steeped in that history and ongoing present of biomedicine. And that's why I actually really turned to literature as an alternative vocabulary to describe myself, because I actually feel like writings for and by marginalized people give us so much more of an abundant sense of self. What I'm saying is, I think I would have only seen myself as lacking or as broken if the only framework I had to describe myself was Western medicine. And then when I began to read, I realized that actually maybe the reason that I have pain and maybe the reason I live with pain is not because I have some disorder 
Maybe it's actually because the society itself is disorderly. Maybe it's not actually my fault. Maybe it's actually that we live in a world where people are only valued for their labor and their output, not for their soul or their dignity. And maybe my pain is a result of that, the external indictment of a world, rather than my internal failure. So how do we as a collective begin to embed or even design new frameworks? And is it by finding, as you shared there, new routes to discovering who we are and how we define ourselves or what we compare ourselves to if there is need for comparison at all? But your route was literature. How do we do that as a collective rather than relying on individuals, particularly those who are from previously marginalized and continue to be marginalized backgrounds, loading them with the labor of creating the change? I say we need to get more experimental. You know, I've been, this is a long standing conversation that we have off the, off the record, but I've been trying to convince you around the poetry of stand-up comedy. And what I really enjoy, there's a lot to not enjoy about contemporary stand-up, but what I really enjoy is the idea of the bit, which is I'm going to go on for five, 10 minutes about something. I'm riffing. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to riff and I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to improvise. And there's so few places in culture where people are rewarded for improvisation. Everyone is expected to already know, to already have a resolute sense of conviction. This is what I believe. And I think that's way too much pressure because I actually think there's something really precious and sacred about figuring it out. And the only way that we can figure it out is whenever we create spaces where we allow one another to improvise and riff, and then we process what came up. And I wish that we could start romanticizing and glorifying improvised lives. I really find that the most incredible people are people who are experimenting with things like freedom. They don't know if it's possible. They don't know even if they believe in it yet, but they try it. And I think trying is an ethic that I really have taken from a lot of creative communities, which is, yeah, I'm not a trained singer, but I'm going to try. I'm not a trained painter, but I'm going to try. And there's beauty in trying. So I say the way forward is we create more spaces for people to try it out. And then for people to dialogue about what that felt like when they tried it out. And I imagine that if we create some more spaces for imagination, that's where we can create a more abundant vocabulary on how to understand ourselves. And create space for imagination, but, simul- but simultaneously create space for error or for growth. And to your point around this notion of fixed ideas or fixed confidence or fixed understanding of who we are, I think many communities have taken the stance and the belief system that that is a continuous iteration of oneself. But I think so much of the world that we live in, there is this not even assumption that mistake is error, but we don't take the notion of fail better and continuously improvising to your point or improving, even if it's not a betterment. But we're so rigid based on who everybody needs to be that it takes real bravery to carve out those new spaces. Yeah, and I I think that's where, once again, history is the specter. It's eugenics that makes us feel like we have to be perfect. The goal of eugenesis was the perfection of the human race and the idea that human beings only had worth if they could appeal to preset criteria. And that has been diffused across every institution that we're in schools, professional careers, we don't believe that people have an inherent dignity and worth for being. And so I think one of the ways that we can actually protest the continuing halo of eugenics is actually affording spaces for people to be perfectly imperfect, challenging 
the the ways in which we require people to be a certain way, speak a certain way, look a certain way in order to have worth and continue to return to that sense of we believe that people have fundamental worth simply for being, which means that people are not the summation of the, the mistakes that they've made, which means that we believe in redemption, which means that we believe in transformation. And I think that the reason often that we are so so scared to say that, scared to see that in each other, is because we have we have associated this deeper correlation between our ability to be loved and to be perfect. So it's not even just about like worthiness. It's about love, which is a whole nother realm. I notice with myself, I am so cruel to myself. When we're talking about self-perception, I think writing is one of the most difficult things for me because I am the most cruel commentator. I can perform in front of thousands of people, but when I'm writing and it's just me, I'm like, this is embarrassing. You're a joke. What makes you think that you could do this? And then I have to confront that the ways in which even though I can speak on podcasts about challenging a culture of perfectionism to myself, I say, okay, everyone else can be imperfect, but I have to be perfect. And I think that that is an overcompensation mechanism that comes from trauma is that I was made to feel because I was different, that the only place I could get a seat at the table was by being exceptional. And so I I can't, I, I just think I'm going to be abandoned if I'm not exceptionally insightful, exceptionally artful. And so I think the work, it's not even work, that word seeps in. The journey I'm trying to do with myself now is to bring this intimately into my self-observation. Because I would reckon that it's easier for us to forgive others often more so than ourselves. And that notion of being the good disabled person or the exceptional disabled person is so ingrained in me because in culture, there are often two narratives of disability. One is the burden relying on state benefits or support from caregivers or family members. And the other motif is the superhero, the Paralympic athlete who wins gold. And in all other spaces, it seems like there was so little room for failure to be a disabled person, or you have to prove that you are the exception in order to be accepted by those who consider themselves to be the majority. And the level of expectation and pressure that that places on a person, well, it's something that I've definitely been unpicking in two years of therapy and still have so much to learn and to do. The format of this podcast is four questions, which every person is asked. And it's interesting because the response to each is so different. And you talked earlier about your career as a stand-up comic. And I have had the privilege in the past 12 months to see you twice and in each performance been so moved in different ways and challenged by those two performances. And I guess a question I have is, you know, how does the world see you? And is that determined by the role that you're in in that moment or the ways in which you allow a person or an audience to see you? But what's your understanding or awareness of that? You know, that question really hits deep right now because I'm just off of an eight-month world tour, which I saw you twice. And I've had a, the first large swath of unstructured time in a while. And it's been deeply confrontational because... I have just been wallowing in despair and I began to realize like it's, it's actually very easy for me to create an image for other people's consumption. But when I have to encounter my own self image, my day to day, when I'm not getting dressed up for events, when I'm not performing, I have to, actually confront myself and ask like do i do i like myself here am am i myself who even am i outside of the narrative of myself right so that's where i'm at to contextualize 
And I think that it's this paradox of which I also am responsible for. So I don't want to blame other people for it. I think we're all doing this. Where I say, I want to be seen beyond visibility. But then visibility becomes the way that I am saying that. And I don't want to judge either party because I think that's just the conundrum that we're in right now. Is I really want to be experienced I want to be felt. I want to be appreciated beyond my physical vocabulary. I want to be appreciated beyond my image. I want to be regarded. And I think that's why I became a poet is because I felt fatigued by being a body. And I wanted to actually have words because those were so much closer to who I am than anything I look like. I feel like my poems are way better selfies than any camera could ever take because they catch a glimmer and a glimpse of my soul, which is what I'm trying to do. But I just don't know if that's possible in a large scale. I feel like the closest I felt to being seen as myself is in one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, coffee tables, dinner tables, sitting on the floor. And perhaps that's the site. Perhaps it's actually about recalibrating. Maybe we're never going to be seen as we want by the world. And maybe that's not the goal. Maybe that's pretend and practice for this. This meaning finding people who are actually committed to experiencing you beyond visuality experiencing soul connection because that's what we seek at the end of the day and i think we seek it often in the wrong places and i have love for myself and other people and then i mean hell i'm in fashion and sometimes i'll be at fashion events and i'll be like what am i doing here you know there's an abyss of vulnerability everyone is in their deepest most incredible fawning complexes everyone is talking without saying anything. This is not spiritually or soul nurturing. Why am I here? Oh, it's out of an earnest desire that maybe if I dress a certain way, then you'll notice me enough to listen to me. And so that I think stages that conundrum over and over again. I think we just want to be noticed and we keep on creating billboards around notice me and very few people are willing to do it. my shoulders have risen up to my ears because so much of what you have just shared there completely mirrors my experience and especially in the past two to three years of the pandemic. My advocacy was so much rooted in the fashion industry because being visibly disabled, so much of my day-to-day -day life was interrupted by strangers or neighbours making comments or making me feel deeply uncomfortable because of what I look like. And I felt that fashion could be a solution, regardless of the price point. That the availability to wear clothes that felt more representative of who I was as a person would create this social contract with society around how they would perceive me. And in some ways, that was a solution because if you go about wearing a branded garment that has a literal currency attached to it, both with strangers and with capitalism, people perceive you differently. But is it you that they are perceiving differently? Is it you that they are allowing to be seen? Or is it a motif? in the wider world. And I think for me in the past three years, so much of the questions that I have had to ask myself is about the changes that have been made within the fashion system because I've been a part of it. Are they for me or are they systemic changes that create access for others? And how does one go about doing that? And is it at all possible? And then simultaneously, to your point, looking to whether or not visibility is at all the goal or a useful vehicle for the journey. And I remember us sitting in Edinburgh over a table, having coffee 
And I asked you a question based on something that I was really challenged by and continue to be. And I asked you, how do you manage how other people see you? And often the criticism or the feedback that they have based on their perceptions of you. And you gave me advice that I still think of almost every day, which was, and forgive me if I'm paraphrasing, you can correct me, but people make the assumption that when they see you, that you are at your destination, not a station on your journey. And they don't have all of the knowledge or the understanding that you possess on where you want to go. And you have to distance yourself from that rhetoric because you're both working with a different shared understanding of what the ambition or the goal is, even if you don't reach it. And for me, that that has been so comforting (laughs) and illuminating in thinking about what the ambition is and how do we be more imaginative in the frameworks that we use. And I'm very grateful for that. But I guess a question that I have to follow up on my long monologue is in terms of what you just shared there in terms of how the world sees you, how has that over time changed what you are ambitious to achieve? Whether that be for yourself, for community, for the greater world. Yeah. (laughs) I've gone through a major metamorphosis in the past few years and I'm so excited because the greatest joy in the world is having to recalibrate and take inventory and be like, oh, who I thought I was isn't true right now. And I think people are so afraid by that. They'll do everything they can to maintain the fiction that they just have to be oneself for the rest of their life. When I actually think the purpose of being alive is to continue to metamorphosize. And so I think for a long time, the work I was doing in the world was about this category gender. And my deep investment was in getting people to move beyond the gender binary and perceive the world outside of the deeply entrenched binary thinking that we have. And then I realized actually the true binary is not between man and woman, it's between you and me. And that actually to truly triumph over the gender binary, we have to triumph over separation, the the myth of separation. And so the traditions that spoke most to that were not in political writings, but were in spiritual writings and in literature. And so I had to actually widen my um, archive and expand my interlocutors and realize actually the goal here is deeply spiritual and I'm no longer as dazzled by vocabulary that's just speaking about rights and inclusion. Those frameworks are malnourished to me. I'm interested in dignity. I'm interested in love. I'm interested in a more bountiful and abundant sense of presence. And so what I've been really trying to harness my energy towards now is living the freest version of myself and challenging this idea that we have to die in order to reach heaven and actually saying that heaven can be here. And right now that can feel like 10 seconds. It can feel like a minute, but as I work on myself, that minute is becoming 70 seconds is becoming 71 seconds. And so the shift has been not staving off discrimination and violence, but rather cultivating pleasure and transcendence. And that's been such a profound shift because I didn't think that I was worthy of peace on earth. I think the only way that I knew myself was through perpetual struggle. And talking about self-perception, I glorified that. I had this martyr complex of being like, well, my task on earth is to struggle. (laughs) 
And now I'm like, how absurd. That's not fair or just to myself. <laughs> I get to also be free here. And how do you define dignity and love? What do those two ambitions and realities look like and feel like for you? I say this with someone who is out as ambivalent around definitions. So what I'm saying right now will obviously contradict what I've said in the past and what I will say in the future. And I <laughs> demand the right to be contradictory <laughs> and incendiary in that. <laughs> right now, my definition of dignity is a non-negotiable appreciation for the inherent beauty, worthiness, and divinity of each and every thing. And my definition of love is a practice of affirming the dignity of oneself and the other so intimately that that distinction between the self and the other no longer exists. So love is a practice of abolishing separation. So what love as a compass requires of me is to notice all the ways in which I flinch into judgment and say, I'm not that, I'm not someone who, I'm better than this. And to actually revisit those sites, not as sites of enlightenment, but as sites of injury, and to say there's some unhealed version of me here, because I am that, because I am us. And that requires a different form of mobilization around all of the political issues that we're about. Because it actually, like, I think that one of my frustrations often in a lot of my political advocacy was I had to be like, okay, I need you to accept trans and non-binary rights. And then I'd be like, wait, hold on. The version of the world that I'm appealing to is not a world that I'm invested in being a part of. These people aren't happy either, and they don't even realize it. So why am I trying to seek that? The bigger spiritual question is, how have you accepted your own grief and misery as reality? And that destroys this binary between those with privilege and those without, because it actually calls to a larger sense of like a lived experience, a somatic experience of a world outside of suffering. And so what I began to realize is that even those who have privilege, quote unquote, are suffering, and I'm not interested in suffering. And so actually they have to be a part of this too. So the commitment then is not that we're trying to end the gender binary, but we're trying to create together a world where even thinking about the gender binary would be obsolete because the ways that we relate to each other are so fundamentally loving that we don't need those myths of separation anymore. And speaking of myths of separation, I think what you and I both talked about just a few minutes ago is the dissonance is the dissonance or the friction or the contradiction even among ourselves. The idea that visibility is not something we may want to subscribe to or see the value in and yet it is still and continues to be a vehicle to be seen and to be heard and looking to that notion of not wishing suffering for ourselves or to participate in it how do we break the dissonance i suppose between the reality and the ambition of what we want to be and who we want to be and is it love and is it practicing love for ourselves and creating space to acknowledge and recognize the parts of us that we may wish to change or evolve but as of yet aren't where we need them to be it's love plot twist <laughs> it's love and i i just think we keep on trying to find some like deep uh, methodology some we think it's got to be more complex or complicated but actually it's very simple 
and it's very difficult because love is the most difficult task I've ever had in my life because I have every incentive for 31 years on this earth to hate myself. Every single day I am invited to quicksand and I notice that in a way that I never did before. I turn on my phone and I'm like, wow, I could scroll right now and hate myself because I know where that's going to leave me. It's going to leave me comparing myself to other people. It's going to leave me judging other people. It's going to leave me saying, I'm not doing enough. It's going to lead me to having FOMO, which are all manifestations of self-hatred because they refuse to actually accept that who we are is already where we were going. It's we're already enough. And so I have to make that choice to set down my phone and say, I'm going to actually love myself, which means I'm not going to expose myself to harm. And that is something that is so hard because my brain only knows harm and suffering and injury and precariousness and instability. And so it seeks it so desperately. And I think that what I'm trying to really do is not shame myself for not being compassionate to myself, because that's another contradiction that I'm trying to avoid. It's to actually love myself for being in process. It's the hardest work is to be able to look at past versions of ourselves, versions of ourselves that we're not proud of, and to integrate that. Like, I think fear is not something that we overcome, it's something that we integrate. And it's always going to be there. It's just that it's, it's stranglehold over our imagination becomes less and less. And I think that this is actually a, a genius strategy that I've learned from my favorite characters and novels and my favorite musicians and artists and activists across history. It's a genius strategy of saying, when you are committed to a world that does not exist yet, you cannot hold yourself to the criteria of this world because you'll be continually seen as failing it. So in this ableist, capitalist, racist, colonialist, eugenic paradigm, the things that I'm saying will be seen as ridiculous, superfluous, idealistic, naive, foolish even. And so what? Because I don't subscribe to those belief systems. So perhaps the work of love is recalibration, is actually saying the things that I'm going to commit my time to externally are going to look absurd, but I know deeply and intimately they were, they're where I need to be. I've only recently begun to have a greater hold on what loving myself means. I think I had very performative notions of it or ones that were stylized by culture and grand gestures and romance and feeling like it was something that other people had to fulfill in me rather than me and myself. And to your point, it is those quotidian daily practices of removing oneself from the things and the people that may cause us harm. Sometimes that might be family. Sometimes that might be friends. Sometimes that might be ourselves. And to be disciplined with how we treat ourselves in the hope that we reach moments, seconds, hours, that we are kinder and fairer to ourselves. But it's a daily practice, at least for me. You talked there about a world that doesn't exist yet. And for me, if I was to think about that world, two of the pillars rooted in my own lived experience that would be important for it would be that it be more equitable and accessible. But if we were to design this world free of all of the constraints that you spoke to, what would it look and feel like, do you think? Yeah, it would feel like 
we no longer needed vacations. We no longer needed escapism because all we needed was each other. And the things that we were seeking were actually immediately available to us. And it was called friendship. It would look like a world where there are no strangers. They're just potential friends where we're not just asking for directions on how to get to the closest bakery with vegan and gluten-free options. We're also asking for directions on how to get free. And the friends on the street, they're like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out too. Do you wanna like figure it out together? And then we would. And then there'd be like millions of people figuring it out together. And it would be just be so beautiful because we realized that we were lonely together and that loneliness then was obsolete because we all felt the same thing that we were afraid of expressing to the world that we were lost and everyone was just honest that they were lost and they didn't really know what they were doing or who they were. I suppose it looks like vulnerability and I suppose it looks like vulnerability that is so diffused into a culture that it no longer is called vulnerability, it's just called being alive. And it's people just being fairly honest about their idiosyncrasies and their whimsies and their dreams and putting everything on the table because we didn't presume a future. We built it instead. I think one of the myths of Western colonial expansion is immortality. And I think both disability and transness in their own unique and conjoined ways come across that myth because both are expressions of profound humanity that puncture that and say pain is real, that say inconvenience and hardship are real, that say suffering is real, and a world of people committed to what ought to be and refusing to see what is they get upset by that. They're like, wait, we were, we were promised. And we say, hey, that promise isn't real. What's real is the fact that I can't get out of bed. What's real is the fact that I don't know who I am. And what's real is that I, healthcare is really expensive. And those things are really difficult for people to confront. But I actually want to reframe those as liberatory practices of that new world. Because that new world isn't aspirational. That new world is actually just actually what it is, that it's hard. And I, I don't ever want to romanticize that, but I do want to say that I stubbornly and dog-earedly am fighting for what is. I think that for a long time, I, I was still critiquing norms while dreaming of them as my future orientation, meaning I, w I felt like I had to become something or get somewhere, be at a certain place in my career, be at a certain place in my gender in order to receive the gift. That's that narrative I was saying about heaven as being a carrot stick perpetually in the future. And I suppose in the world that I want to create, it's one where we realize that heaven isn't always happy. Heaven isn't always like triumphant. Heaven also can feel difficult and fatiguing and exhausting, but at least it's honest. So I guess the future world that does not exist, but is becoming is an honest world. And it's one that doesn't have to exist in another universe, solar system or time, but it can exist and should exist right now, even if it's for a moment be it in a conversation on the floor or witnessing mm. a performance or a piece of art or writing and that it can be a dotted line until we get to the continued one, which is hopefully a destination for one that is much more promised or continuous. We've talked a lot about what you and I are doing to hopefully reach that place in ourselves and in the new world that's becoming. But you and I can't do that alone. We can do it for ourselves, but not for the collective. 
For those who may be listening to this conversation or reading the transcript, who these ideas are being illuminated for them for the first time, what is it they can go and begin to do to create that practice for themselves in order for us all to get to that place sooner? Okay, this is a really hard question for me because there's an answer that I would normally give, but we just talked about practicing the world that we want now, which means being honest. (laughs) So rather than giving the scripted (laughs) answer, I'm going to give the honest answer. I have come to believe that even if people hate me, that is about ultimately their healing journey. I need to be the villain in your story right now in order for you to get where you have to go next. And that has nothing to do with me. It's not my responsibility to correct. It's not my responsibility to convince. Each person are on is on their own circuitous path to freedom. That's where we're all headed, even if it takes people a very long time to get there. And we want everyone to be at our pace. But perhaps one of the lessons we can learn is each person has their own pace. And actually then, it's not about trying to rush people to get there. It's about living the most free version of ourselves such that people make the decision unto themselves to accelerate, to expand. And that's a fundamentally different paradigm than the first way I was going to answer was going to be like, you know, sit with your discomfort. Like I was going to give the list of things that you're supposed to do to like listen to marginalized people. And I just don't, I don't know if I subscribe to that anymore. I mean, I, I sometimes do, but Now I'm actually, when I'm looking at the evidence of my life and I'm looking how have people around me changed, they've changed because they've witnessed me become myself. And that was the most compelling argument. The most compelling argument was my joy. No no amount of textbooks, no amount of analysis, no amount of book reports, and we all know I love a book report, no amount of history could convince them the way that my laughter could that I could live in this life, that eugenics, that colonialism, that all of their evil love children together would say is an ugly, despicable, unlivable life. And that I could be there in that unlivable life and say, it's pretty rad. And we have really great potlucks and we cry and I feel, I feel, happier than I've ever been. And that is the work that I'm so invested in right now. That's why my latest collection of poems was called Your Wound, My Garden. Because what I was trying to say is that the work is shifting not just the modes of production, but the modes of perception, that what these systems think of as an unlivable, despicable life actually many of us live incandescently in and we can celebrate that. And that's the shift, the paradigm shift I've been speaking towards is I'm not interested in aligning myself with a world predicated on misery. I'd rather be here and be honest that I'm in pain and alongside that pain, there's glory. We have to find the gift for ourselves and revel in it now, not later, even if it's only for a moment. Alok, I cannot thank you enough. In the middle of New York Fashion Week, taking the time to share parts of yourself, your ambitions and, yeah, your world with me. I am so grateful and... 
I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a very long time as my own frameworks rebuild and even more as I recalibrate myself. <laughs> Alok, thank you so much. I should mention that in the beginning, I'd wish that you had mentioned that you had beautiful floral wallpaper behind you. <laughs> that adds to so much of this in such a, a really palpable way for me, because I think what I'm trying to say ultimately is that we should learn from flowers to be like audacious and extremely flamboyant and to not predicate our sense of a worthy life on time because a flower wilts and it knows that it will, but that doesn't make it despair. Instead, it just lives so- And takes up space. Yes, totally. And I just, yeah, I'm like, okay, here's an intersection of fashion and ecology and, and social justice. Maybe the turn to floor prints says something deeper. Alok, thank you. Thank you so, so much. I'm gonna stop recording. <laughs>